Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Eyes on the Right. Bill Galston had a travel snafu today, so The Bulwark's own Will Salatin is sitting in for him. And our special guest is Benjamin Wittes, co-founder of the Lawfare site and also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, among many other titles. So welcome one and all. This was a week in which you could say that two reckless sociopaths on the world stage were backed into corners and responded with dark threats. One was Vladimir Putin, and we'll get to him, and the other was, of course, Donald Trump. So let's begin with Trump. He had three major legal setbacks this week. First, having requested a special master in the case of his having absconded with uh, classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, the special master, Judge Raymond Deary, um, put matters on a fast track, which is exactly what the Trump team was hoping would not happen, and also demanded that Trump's lawyers show proof that he had declassified documents in his possession, which they had not done. Second setback, a three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, including two Trump-appointed judges, overruled Judge Cannon on a key matter. And third, the Attorney General of New York sued Trump, three of his adult children, uh, his organization, and so on, for a massive fraud. Ben Wittes, I'm going to start with you. Let's begin with the New York AG's action because it really made for some amazing reading. I mean, for those of us who've been following Trump all these years closely for the last six, none of this is at all surprising. In fact, it would have been surprising if she had found any sort of um, integrity in the way he conducted his business affairs. But you have to uh, just be gobsmacked by some of the details. For example, Trump valued his triplex apartment in Trump Tower at $327 million, based on the idea that it was 30,000 square feet. In fact, said the uh, Attorney General, Letitia James, it's 10,996 square feet. Furthermore, no apartment in New York has ever sold for as much as $100 million. (laughs) Your response to any and all of this? Well, I guess the first point to make about this is that it is a civil case, not a criminal case. And for those who are, you know, concerned about the ultimate accountability for Trump's behavior and are thinking about the criminal system for that, this is a bit of an ancillary gesture in that regard. That said, it is a really important one um, because it goes to the long-standing business practices and behaviors of the Trump organization and of its leadership and uh, could actually go a long way to putting uh, this group of people out of business. This is an investigation that had criminal dimensions. Uh, The Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, doesn't have jurisdiction over that. 
those parts of it have mostly fizzled out, at least as pertains to Trump himself. But the result could be a massive judgment in the civil liability department, which is no small thing. Damon, um, the Trump, you know, acolytes have been riding to his rescue, of course, and they're making a number of objections. So one thing they are saying, and Trump is saying, is, well, I mean, the only people who were defrauded, if anybody, were big banks and insurance companies, and they're big boys, and they have to do their own due diligence. And Trump says, and besides, they never lost a penny on me. So who was hurt? Why did these banks make these loans to somebody who was so obviously misrepresenting his wealth? Don't you wonder about that? Well, I, I've I've wondered that for a long time, but the the long arc of Trump's career shows that uh, the the number of banks that would loan him money dwindled over the years, and by the end, you were left pretty much with Deutsche Bank, which has all kinds of other legal problems uh, around the globe with the people it does business with. So uh, that might explain why they were the last ones standing. We haven't gotten to the bottom of that yet. Uh, it's going to take an international investigation a long time to figure it out if it ever gets unraveled entirely. Um, I mean, of course, Trump and his acolytes are going to say anything and everything to muddy waters and obscure what's really going on here. I mean, as you sort of indicated in your opening uh, comments uh, before talking to Ben, I mean, I I grew up in the New York area. Donald Trump has been on my radar as someone in the news for like pretty much my whole life. I mean, I guess I've probably first started seeing stories about him when I was in my late teens, in the late 80s, and then just all the way through. And from the very first moment, I, my father, my brother, everyone else in my extended family just knew intuitively, this guy's just a con man. He's a crook. He's, And this was long before, you know, as the decades have rolled by, this has become clearer and clearer. But anyone with any kind of like radar about these things, you know, would run the other way from this guy. So I have to say, you know, I'm I'm well known on the podcast for being a bit of a skeptic about the legal approach to to Trump. I think these investigations are all very important. They turn up information that needs to be in the public realm for people to make political decisions about whether or not they're going to support him. And if they do exactly how much garbage they're having to swallow in that process. But, you know, the, the Letitia James, James uh, business uh, doesn't strike me as the biggest problem for him. Part of it is, as has been mentioned, it's a civil issue, not a criminal one. Secondly, this is going to come down to a kind of he said, she said battle of like, you overestimated the value of your assets. And he said, yeah, but at the moment, I thought that's what it was. Prove I was wrong. And then, you know, when it comes to the size of his apartment, if he lies and triples the the literal square footage of it, that's a, that's a gotcha case, obviously. But, Wait, but Damon, what if he genuinely believed that it was 30,000 <laughs> square feet? Well, there are a lot of other areas in his, in his portfolio where I think he will be able to claim, well, I thought that my skyscraper in Lower Manhattan actually could fetch the following amount of money. Mm. Proving that he knowingly lied about it is going to be very difficult. Actually, no, I'm going to push back on you here, Damon. I read the whole complaint. I got to tell you, some of these things. You read the whole thing? It was like 200 pages. I didn't read the whole thing. I read big chunks. 
And so, for example, he would say that that a particular property or, or apartment building or whatever had a certain value, even though, for example, it was a rent-stabilized building. But he would say that he could get, you know, he, these sky-high rents out of a building where legally he was not allowed to charge more than a certain amount. So you can't say, oh, I honestly thought I was going to get dreamer. more. No. He's a dreamer. He's imagining when they repeal the rent control regulations. This is not a smoking gun situation where like, ah, we got you. It's going to be a mud fest and it's going to go on for years yeah. and be a mess. And in the end, he might have to pay a, an enormous fine and might be put out of business in New York City, but he's already relocated to Florida <laughs> and he and the rest of his crook family can kind of set up shop down there. And by the way, last point, we're all very well aware that Donald Trump's primary way of making money at this point is securing donations for his political ambitions. Is and so, policing the rubes. Exactly. So like yeah, th yeah, yeah. this is all about the past. Donald Trump's future is raking in hundreds of millions of dollars of donations for his various ambitions and projects. That's totally right. So Linda, you know, Ben points out uh, that this is a this is a civil case, not criminal. But there are certain advantages uh, for the government here because, for one thing, the standard of proof is lower. She only has to prove this by preponderance of the evidence, not beyond a reasonable doubt. And then also, under the civil standard, because this is a tort, all of those, like, I don't know how many occasions when he was deposed and he pled the fifth, all of that comes in. Through the, the jury can draw conclusions about that, whereas in a criminal case, that would not be allowed in. So that's, you know, not nothing. You're, you're absolutely right about that. But I want to push back a little against um, my friend Damon, because I do think, yes, you can be off maybe even by a factor of, you know, double digit percentage in in your valuations. But we're talking about a man who sometimes valued his property at 10 times what it was worth. And by the way, it was that he used different figures when he was trying to get a loan than he used when he was about to have to pay taxes. And that's the kind of fraudulent activity that I think will do him in. And I'm not absolutely certain that we've seen the end of the criminal investigation in New York. Now, Alvin Bragg, for whatever reason, decided to pull back, but he's got a lot of problems. And you have to remember, what does Donald Trump care about more than anything in the world other than himself? His money. And this poses a threat to his wealth. Uh, it is a civil suit and it will drag on for uh, some time, but, you know, it's not likely to help him uh, in business. And I think Damon is right when he says that, you know, his business now is no longer, you know, making money in real estate. It is uh, fleecing the rubes, uh, but he does owe a lot of money. He owes about a billion dollars uh, and that money is going to come due probably not till 2028. He was able to offload a couple of his most troublesome loans, including one to Deutsche Bank, which was for almost $300 million. But he has trouble borrowing money. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think he stays uh, so active politically. I think this is a problem for him. I'm not willing to just say, well, you know, this is just a pinprick or whatever. He's, he's going to have to deal with the consequences. And more importantly, 
Ivanka and Donald Jr. and Eric are also going to have to deal with the consequences because they are being accused of fraud as well. And we know that Eric invoked his Fifth Amendment uh, right against self-incrimination hundreds of times in his deposition as well. By the way, just to tidy up what I had said in our opening, you know, about making dark threats, one of the things we saw from Trump this week was an interview in which, echoing um, Lindsey Graham, he said that uh, America wouldn't stand for it if he were indicted and that there would be problems like we've never seen before in this country if he were indicted. So plus cozying up to QAnon, he now wears a Q in his lapel and plays QAnon music at his very increasingly bizarre rallies. But let's leave that aside for a second or comment it on if you wish. But I want to get to the 11th Circuit. So, Will, the 11th Circuit, very rapidly heard this appeal of uh, Judge Cannon's order and slapped her down really hard. They they reversed her ruling in part where the one where she had said that the government could not continue its examination of the classified documents that had been uh, recovered from Mar-a-Lago pending the uh, special master's examination of everything. And the appeals court was very very tough. And it included, it's a three-judge panel, it included two Trump appointees. So quite a um, vindication of the rule of law, didn't you think? I think this is a great decision by the 11th Circuit. And it's a kind of a vindication of Trump judges. Mitch McConnell and the Republicans shoved through as many of these judges as they could onto the federal bench, onto the appeals courts, onto the Supreme Court. And people said, oh, my God, they're packing the judiciary with Trumpists. But it turns out that Trump judges are not monolithic and they are not necessarily Trump loyalists. So we have at the district level in this case, uh, Eileen Cannon, and she is a manifestly incompetent or corrupt or something judge who uh, obviously violated all kinds of uh, precedent in the way that she handled this case. And but, however, two judges that Donald Trump put on the Eleventh Circuit uh, clearly voted correctly, uh, overruling her. And I would remind everyone that the you know the Trump judges on the Supreme Court also did not go with Trump in his corrupt attempts to overturn the election. So there is a difference between loyalist Trump judges or incompetent Trump judges and plain old Federalist Society judges who, when push comes to shove, uphold the Constitution and uphold precedent. And that's what these judges on the Eleventh Circuit did. Ben Wittes, one more question about Letitia James, and then and then we'll move on. But um, just anticipating what may happen, and maybe to guard against disappointment, a couple things. One is that she's demanding disgorgement of two hundred and fifty million dollars, but a hundred million of that is based on the profit that Trump made from selling his hotel in D.C. And the the profit is nothing like a hundred million dollars, and it, so some people think that she was she was really reaching with that number. Further, you know, a couple more things. I mean, she did campaign saying uh, that she was going to sue Trump. She she campaigned that way, which again can cast a little bit of a cloud over the case because it looks like she had already made up her mind. And also the use of that term, the art of the steel, maybe it's a good line, but, it, you know, a little less than perfectly professional and cool and detached. What do you make of those things? 
So I was a critic of Letitia James at the time of her campaign. I thought her uh, campaign on the basis of a promise to uh, target a particular person was uh, inappropriate, frankly, and raised some of the same issues in a pale sort of way that Trump's own abuses of law enforcement and prejudgment of cases raised. Uh, I thought it was bad. I do think it taints the current case. And uh, at the same time, the case has to stand or fall on its own merits. And, you know, I, I am not actually qualified to discern under New York law or for that matter, as a matter of accounting and economics, uh, how one should count the profits from uh, sales of Trump hotels or whether they count as uh, fraudulently gained assets for purposes of disgorgement. I do think the volume of fraud involved in running the Trump organization over a long period of time probably has given rise to a great deal of ill-gotten profits that will probably be recoverable uh, through a litigation like this. The one caution that I would give other than that Tish James, you know, has to some degree, played in a somewhat Trumpy fashion, is that civil litigation takes a very long time. And the appeals associated with civil litigation also take a very long time. And so nobody should delude themselves that this is any kind of quick resolution, even if it ultimately does lead to a good place. On the 11th Circuit matter, um, I would uh, just add a note of caution to Will's enthusiasm for uh, Federalist Society judges. Judge Cannon's ruling that this uh, stay was slapped on was so outrageously wrong that it actually is a simple matter of professionalism to put a stay on it. The Justice Department's request, which was a stay as to only a hundred of the documents, is so uh, manifestly reasonable and called for. So in a lawfare piece uh, a week and a half ago or so, I and a couple colleagues essentially wrote the 11th Circuit opinion, not that they were copying it from us, but that the answer to these questions was so clear that I think anybody who was not playing in overtly bad faith would have come to something very similar to the conclusion that the 11th Circuit came to. And while I very much agree with Will that people shouldn't assume that no Federalist Society judges can do their jobs because, in fact, they do every day and, you know, people of diverse politics can get together on legal issues and sort them out a lot of the time, I, I do think that's a very low bar to clear before we celebrate the uh, mainstreamness of the Trump uh, judicial appointments. Yeah, but Ben, the era in which we live is one where we have seen again and again people that we thought were institutionalists betray those uh, those norms and jump onto, you know, the populist Trumpy bandwagon. And you know, I remember thinking that uh, Bill Barr, for example, was going to be well. I did okay. too, and and, <laughs> and uh, you know, and. <laughs> There are people who remind me of that literally every day on Twitter <laughs> that I 
quote, vouched for Bill Barr and Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, so yeah. I, um, look, I, I, I take your point. I do think if we ever come to the place where you can't count on uh, Article Three judges to, in an apolitical fashion, reverse an opinion as outrageously wrong as Judge Cannon's was, I think we uh, we will be in a worse place than we are. And I, I do think it is a great thing that the 11th Circuit uh, acted uh, in a completely nonpartisan fashion, acted extremely quickly within 24 hours of getting the government's last brief, wrote the opinion as a per curiam, that is, as an opinion of the court, not in the name of any judge, uh, and also, and uh, quite deliciously, uh, I hope everybody noticed that the opinion is captioned Donald Trump v. United States of America. Mm, beautiful. So this week, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, did something that he has done before, uh, namely engaged in rattling the nuclear saber, but um, I I'm not sure he's ever quite done it this explicitly. I will just uh, read a section of the speech that he delivered uh, to the Russian people. He accused NATO and the West, and specifically Brussels. He said, Washington and Brussels, he says, they are um, engaging in nuclear blackmail. And then he says, quote, those who make such statements will be reminded that our country also has various weapons of destruction. And with regard to certain components, they are even more modern than the NATO ones. And he says, Russian citizens can be certain that the territorial integrity of our motherland, our independence and security will be assured. I shall stress by all means available to us and those trying to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know that the tables can turn on them and then he said, this is not a bluff. So, uh, Linda, this was in response to the fact that he's losing the war on the ground. He also announced the call-up of reserves. First of all, what do you make of this threat, and what do you think the proper response from the U.S. and, and the West should be? Well, I think the threat is becoming more real, and I think you're absolutely right. There was uh, something a little different about this. There have actually been suggestions of sites that could be hit in Ukraine that the Russians might target. Uh, and presumably these would be with tactical nuclear weapons. But as we all know, that would be a line that NATO could not uh, see that the United States could not see crossed and would take us uh, to the brink of, of an international war uh, that would involve NATO and the U.S. And so I, I think it is a little scary, uh, but it does indicate to me how cornered Putin is. I think I said it on this podcast a week or two ago, uh, he's like a cornered rat. And when a rat is cornered, it lashes out. It becomes more dangerous than at any other time. And Putin has uh, seen that he has lost territory to the uh, Ukrainian uh, military. He sees that his support within Russia is uh, diminishing. 
one of the things that happened after he announced that he was going to mobilize the reserves in Russia, and it's been a little unclear exactly uh, who he was mobilizing and how many he was mobilizing, but it seemed to be a pretty major uh, announcement, is that all of the flights um, where people could get on a plane without a visa leaving Russia were sold out uh, within hours. People are fleeing. Men don't want to be called up. There were demonstrations in the street. There were uh, literally thousands of arrests that were made following this. So, Linda, is- can I just interrupt real quick about mm-hmm. those demonstrations? Yeah. I heard someone saying, I think it was from BBC, saying that many of the demonstrators are women and children because what happened was that the men who participated were immediately grabbed and, and conscripted into the army. Right. Well, you know, that's that's the old uh, tactic. I mean, they're acting like Cossacks now, you know, they're rounding up any male, I guess, above the you know age of 16 and going to try to conscript them into uh, to serving because the fact is they're not doing well. And so, you know, it's it's an act of desperation. But the nuclear threat uh, changes. And I think you asked what the response should be. I think the response has to be very clear that we will respond in kind. Doesn't necessarily mean we'll drop nuclear bombs, but it does mean that the United States and NATO will become directly involved in this conflict, uh, that we cannot sit by and watch uh, nuclear weapons used on European soil. Uh, Damon, one of the other things that Putin said he's going to do is uh, hold referenda in four of the regions of Ukraine that Russia controls and uh, then declare them to be Russian territory, which raises the possibility that if he does that, that then when Ukrainians uh, fire on their own land uh, that Russia now claims is Russian territory, that they, this will be construed as uh, as attacking uh, Russia's homeland, and therefore Putin will feel uh, entitled <laughs> to uh, to respond with uh, a nuclear weapon. Yeah, that really is the the real risk here. Like you know what Putin said in like literal terms, the passages that you quoted. Uh, don't really worry me very much because if they literally mean, you know, if NATO militaries actually cross the, the border into Russia and start, you know, driving toward Moscow, he'd start using nukes. Well, yeah, no kidding. We, we knew that. And that isn't anything that we would be doing anyway. So, uh, it did sound to me like a bluff, but, but what you have now, uh, given us as the minor premise of this little syllogism, it, it really, that does strike me as the most dangerous scenario, that they they put on some some fake election uh, to, to make it seem as if the people living in these regions on the border of Russia are actually choosing to join with Russia so that Putin can try to hold those territories from Ukraine, take them, uh, absorb them into Russia proper, and then any attempt by Ukraine to take them back will be seen as then an attack on Russia, which then would justify the use of nukes. I still think... You know, again, you know, who am I? I'm going to play, uh, you know, nuclear poker here (laughs) uh, with, uh, you know, the uh, very, very high stakes here. But I'm going to say I don't believe he would do that. 
Uh, in this case, I do think this is the behavior of a, a wounded and cornered animal, which can be indeed very dangerous, but I doubt very much that he's become, that Putin has become suicidal. And he, I, he has to understand that if he can't even do better than he is in this little war, then he is absolutely no match to the combined forces of NATO and that he would very likely end up dead uh, one way or another, <laughs> whether it's from uh, NATO weaponry or, you know, being stabbed in the back by one of his aides as they get rid of him in order to try to stop the annihilation of their country. So, uh, you know, I, it, it is a dangerous uh, situation and, I worry about it, but I frankly don't think, uh, I mean, the, the scenario in which it would make sense for him to reach for nukes would be one in which the West actively invaded Russia. I mean, what, what is he going to do? Is he really going to like nuke and irradiate these territories within Ukraine? I mean, what good is that? What What is he left with then? I mean, all, all of it would blow into Russian territory anyway and end up irradiating his own country. It just doesn't make any sense. So the incorrigible rationalist that I am, I, I can't help but trying to think in somewhat rational terms about these calculations, and it, it just doesn't add up to me. Uh, I'm much more uh, concerned with seeing the Ukrainians continue their push onward so that all of this becomes a, a moot point. So, Ben Wittes, uh, first of all, uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainians don't seem cowed or intimidated by this talk. Um, and uh, the truth is that this is not the first time that Putin has threatened nuclear war. He, he's actually been doing this quite a bit over the years. I mean, more than his predecessors, right? Very much so. He has been occasionally making uh, nuclear blackmail threats since the beginning of the conflict. And he used uh, such threats to try to prevent uh, the Western governments, uh, particularly the United States, but not only, uh, from supporting Ukraine militarily. And, you know, the, the part of the problem for Putin is that if you think about it from a purely military point of view, nuclear escalation is the wrong kind of escalation for him. What you actually want to be able to do, uh, since you're outnumbered on the ground and the West is providing Ukraine better weapons than you have, you want to be able to throw better troops, better weapons, and uh, more bodies at the problem. And that is exactly what he can't do He's having very serious supply problems. They have very serious manpower problems, and their troops are at a very low level of quality, uh, which has come as something of a surprise to lots of people in the West. And so the, the type of escalation that would actually make sense would be a type of escalation that involves more troops performing better with better weapons, but that is what he can't do. So you're left with the threat of escalation of a type that actually makes very little sense for you to do because, you know, you don't control which way the winds blow. And uh, by the way, any use of nuclear uh, forces would bring uh, Western power to bear in a way that we have actually restrained ourselves from doing so far. And it risks 
uh, as Damon says, a kind of suicidal escalation. And so, you know, part of the problem for Putin is that the one form of escalation that's really available to him is actually not very useful from a practical point of view. The big thing that nuclear weapons are useful for is preventing the other side from using nuclear weapons. And of course, the Ukrainians don't have nuclear weapons and nobody else is threatening to use them. So it's not really that useful for this situation. The other thing that he's done, as you mentioned, is a partial mobilization, which uh, is very unpopular in Russia, as you can see from the uh, amount of street protests that it has yielded. But in addition, that has this other problem, which is that while it does involve being able to throw more troops at the problem, uh, they are of going to be of a very low quality and they really don't want to be there since a bunch of them seem to have been yesterday anti-war protesters. And so I, I think, you know, the posture is a real reflection of the degree of weakness that Putin finds himself in. It's a, it's a reflection of the degree of strength that the Ukrainians have shown. And it is also a, a reflection of the degree of incoherence of Russian policy and sort of fumbling for what to do next. And one of the oddities of that, you know, when you're really in control of the government, when you're really in control of the situation and your policy makes sense and you know what you're doing, you don't announce that you're going to give a speech and then not show up. Yeah, I didn't mention that. Just explain that. Well, so Putin, you know, announced that there was going to be a major speech and uh, and then just didn't happen. And it didn't happen, in fact, until the next morning. And I think it, you know, reflects a degree of chaos in the actual running of the Russian government. And, you know, one thing that fascist strongmen really don't like to project is chaos. So, Will, the Russian Duma has been rushing to pass certain laws that uh, mandate very harsh penalties for deserters, looters, and mutineers in the army. So that gives you a little window into what's going on on the ground, the fact that they feel the need to do that. And um, as Ben was suggesting, even authoritarians do have to worry, they have to watch their back, and they have to worry about public opinion at a certain point and about morale. And it sounds as, I mean, there are people in in Russia who are very pro-war and who buy the whole, you know, this was an aggression by NATO using uh, Ukraine as a cat's paw and so forth, and therefore they're for the war, but they're not happy about the way it's going. So the right-wing hardliners are not happy. And then, of course, there's what I presume to be, you know, a significant portion of the population based on the number of people who are willing to brave the law and arrest to come out on the streets who are opposed and the number of people who are trying to escape the country, et cetera, et cetera. And so he really does have to be concerned, uh, doesn't he, about how this is playing out. And uh, that's one of the reasons people keep telling us that if he were to declare a general mobilization, he's always called this a special military operation. He has not yet said it's a war. But if he did say it were a war, you know, that would be tremendously unpopular. And he's worried about that. Yeah. Um, Putin has two problems. He has a, a military problem and he has a political problem. And the political problem is about the war. Uh, the, the 
calling up all these troops uh, will not solve his military problem, and it, it has already exacerbated his political problem. To Ben's point about the low quality of the troops, uh, Ben is exactly right. You, you have a numbers problem in the Russian military. They don't have enough troops to, in Ukraine to with, uh, clearly to withstand Ukrainian offensives. But they also have clearly a quality problem, and that is evidenced by throughout this war, to begin with, uh, Russian tanks and equipment have just been left behind. Lots of evidence of Russian soldiers just abandoning their equipment. And in this latest offensive around Kharkiv, we just saw flight, right? We just saw Russian troops fleeing, getting out of there. There, there is a very low will to fight in Ukraine among the Russians. And of course, it's not their country, right? So that's natural. But in addition to that, when Putin starts conscripting these guys, as you point out, the, the, the most absurd example is taking people out of anti-war protests and putting them in to fight, right? right. <laughs> uh, but there's, but beyond that, just generally putting conscripts in instead of people who signed up to be in the Russian military, now you're going to have soldiers who are standing there in Russian uniforms and they have weapons, but are they going to fight? If I'm a Ukrainian, I'm not treating an army full of conscripts the same way. And I don't believe that those soldiers, if they go into Ukraine, will be able to, for example, hold a line against a southern offensive around Kherson to the degree that the current Russian forces have. So he's not solving the military problem. On the political side, you're exactly right, Mona. Even dictators or semi-dictators or whatever we're going to call Putin need public opinion on their side. And what he has done by extending this mass conscription is he's ripped the cover off of this so-called special military operation, as you rightly point out. It is now a war, whether he calls it that or not. And we have, first of all, you know, 300,000 to a million people who are going to be subject to this. But in addition, all of these young men who, are, who think they might be eligible for this are fleeing the country. Their wives are being left behind with their kids. We have a minimum of 1,300 protesters that have been arrested despite previous arrests. So there is the beginning of a groundswell against Putin. And I will just add one thing about the delay that Ben pointed out in the, spe the speech not happening when it was supposed to. To me, that doesn't just say chaos. That says that there is dissension within Putin's government to a degree that held him back, at least briefly. And it is possible, just possible, that if this thing gets worse and Putin refuses to bend, somebody inside the Kremlin, somebody with some military clout behind them will, you know, as Lindsey Graham once said, take him out. And with that, we will turn to our third topic, which is the uh, Electoral Count Reform Act. So for months and months, it looked like, you know, we weren't getting the reform of the Electoral Count Act that we so desperately needed. And now we have two bills. <laughs> so we have an embarrassment of riches in a way. Now, I want to get through this fairly quickly. Not everybody has to comment. So I'll just ask you if you if you have strong feelings and something, a point you want to make, uh, please raise your hand. I will go uh, to Damon on this. Damon, the House voted on a uh, bipartisan bill introduced by Liz Cheney and uh, Zoe Lofgren that is, in my humble opinion, a better reform than the one uh, that was proposed and that has, um, by the way, a uh, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. So the Senate version has got 10 Republican co-sponsors, which means that it can pass over a filibuster. So... Even though the House version is better, I'm wondering if you think maybe the safer course is just to go with whatever we can get. And if that means the not quite as good Senate version, 
go with that? Or, or have you heard anything about possibly melding the two, which would, which would be good too? Normally, I would think that that kind of a, a reconciliation would be uh, in order. It might not be required by the rules of the legislative game, but uh, some kind of compromise, I suspect, will be hashed out. But uh, frankly, I'll take either of these bills. Uh, I mean, I agree the the House one is a little better, but it's very good news that uh, actually Pat Toomey, one of my two Pennsylvania senators, uh, came out for that 10th co-sponsor uh, among the Republicans, giving it the uh, filibuster-proof uh, supermajority, which is very, very good news and makes me, uh, you know, very pleased about Pat Toomey, although it uh, does give further evidence for the thesis that uh, Republicans can still be very admirable office holders provided they're not seeking re-election. Because, um, of course, <laughs> Toomey is leaving, uh, is, uh, that is, is, is heading for the exit because uh, he knew that it was no longer his party. And uh, so it looks like one of his last acts as a legislator is going to be the co-sponsorship of this bill, which is a good legacy because this is a big, important, far-reaching bill. So, uh, and the, the other quick thing I'll just note is that the House bill, you had, I believe, what, did seven Republicans uh, flip to vote for nine. it? It was something like that. Nine, all right, and 207 against, uh, I believe. And I, I made a comment on Twitter about this that like, well, you know, the interesting question here is how many of them actually hate this bill and don't want to vote for it? And how many of them simply are afraid to support it because then all the, the Trumpy voters will come and, and punish them for it? And to which some people on Twitter responded, well, really doesn't matter, does it? No, that's exactly <laughs> really, right. Who cares in politics what the, 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 what the person has in his or her heart? In their deep heart. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Exactly. And so that's where we are in the House GOP. Yeah. <laughs> ben Wittes, just real quick. So um, the nine Republicans uh, who voted for this very necessary reform, none of them will be in Congress next year uh, for a variety of reasons. Either they were retiring or they were defeated in their primaries. <laughs> so uh, there you go. And uh, Representative Jim Banks, who uh, is is the voice of the typical House Republican, uh, said uh, to Politico that he was against this bill because it was a political weapon to beat up on Donald Trump and not about preventing a January 6th from ever happening again. Any comment? Well, uh, yes. So a couple things about this. <laughs> the first is... It's a very important piece of legislation to get done because uh, while Congress can try to do almost anything it wants when it receives uh, electoral votes, uh, the Electoral Count Act actually sets the baseline for what happens unless something extraordinary is done. And the baseline rules tend to get followed. And so setting a reasonable, good baseline is actually really important. Uh, second point is that the it is a remarkable failure on the part of Congress and I would say the Biden administration that this is actually the first really significant post-Trump reform to pass legislatively. That's a good point. You know, you think about all of the people who wrote books about necessary reforms. We published one of them at Lawfare by 
Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer. Uh, there have been a lot. There was a lot of great thought that went into the question of what legislative and executive reform looks like. And while we've had a one-six committee and we've had a, a very active DOJ criminal investigation, the amount of actual reform energy at the policy level is is been really minimal. And uh, I think that's a, a regrettable omission. And uh, I hope this marks a change in it. Uh, unfortunately, I I worry that the absence of any capacity for bipartisanship in this area, at least in the House, and the the numbers that you cite are a reflection of that. Every Republican who's courted this is not going to be there next year. Uh, is going to mean uh, that any continued momentum or progress in this regard is going to be impossible if Republicans control the, the chamber and very difficult if you are counting on any Republican votes for it. The final thing I will say is the utility of this bill is to some degree contingent on what the Supreme Court does in a case that's coming up uh, this coming term uh, involving the so-called independent state legislature doctrine. And, uh, you know, you could imagine a situation in which what Congress does through a, a bill like this, a reform like this, can get functionally undone by the Supreme Court announcing that state legislatures can kind of give their electoral votes to whomever they want under whatever rules and uh, actions they might want to take. And so I would say this is a very important step, but it is uh, a contingent step and uh, uh, not an adequate one on its own. Thank you very much. And now we will turn to our final segment. Highlight or low light of the week? Will Salatin, I'll start with you. Uh, well, my low light has to do with the war in Ukraine, but it's not specifically about Russia. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the United States released some intelligence uh, designed to expose a what they said were efforts by Russia to buy weapons from a certain country in Asia. And that country uh, this week uh, issued a statement angrily denying that it was selling the weapons. It said, quote, we have, this is the official statement, we have never exported weapons or ammunition to Russia before, and we will not plan to export them. We warned the U.S. to stop making reckless remarks. The country that issued that statement is North Korea. So it, what, one of the things that Vladimir Putin has managed to achieve in the half year or so of this war is that he has managed to make Russia such a pariah that even the pariahs of the world <laughs> have ostracized him. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, uh, actually, we, we didn't get into it in that segment, but uh, it has been, uh, I have to say, a little bit of schadenfreude to see him being schooled uh, and lectured by the leaders of India and China and others who, in the beginning of the war, were certainly unwilling to criticize him. So uh, so that's that's good. Okay, uh, Benjamin Wittes. As some uh, listeners may know, I have spent a lot of time over the past six months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine doing uh, something that's quite unusual for me, which is, I, I guess, a form of activism. I've been projecting images on walls of Russian diplomatic facilities, generally involving war crimes 
uh, committed by Russian uh, troops. And I have been doing things like planting sunflowers in front of the Russian embassy, which the Russians really don't like. And they actually come out of the embassy to destroy the sunflowers. And so these are all all fun and games. Um, But I want to, as a low light of the week, point to something that happened in Montreal, uh, where this is stuff I know about only because uh, people who conduct actions against the Russian embassies and diplomatic facilities all keep in touch with each other. In Montreal, uh, this is in a Western democracy. Uh, The Russians uh, have it seems like hired people to rough up people uh, who are protesting at the embassy. And in the case of the Montreal consulate, they took a 91-year-old man's speaker and hurled it to the ground. And this is not the first instance um, in which Russian uh, embassy personnel have engaged in I would say something approaching violence. You know, in my case, we had an incident where one of the people that I was working with, a Ukrainian woman, had the presence of mind to videotape. And so it became a bit of a viral video when I released it. But we had uh, two young Ukrainian-American girls lay sunflowers on the Uh, driveway of the embassy, and a member of the embassy staff drives up, gets out of his car, kicks the sunflowers uh, into the street, and stomps on them. So I, my lowlight of the week is Russian embassy personnel and their sometimes local hires who don't seem to understand that the bullying tactics uh, that are routine in Moscow are not okay in Montreal or in Washington, and that when you are a diplomat in a country, you are expected to respect the local laws, even though we cannot hold you to them. Thank you for that, Ben. Uh, also, I have to say, you, you described it as fun and games, but it really isn't. It's 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 dead serious. And one of the things that you did that I was so impressed with is that you superimposed somehow, you shot the, the colors of the Ukrainian flag, shown them onto the Russian embassy here in, in D.C., which uh, which is just just beautiful. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And and I, I feel very affronted by what happened in Montreal. And um, I guess I will say that the next, we call them special military operations for obvious reasons. <laughs> the next special military operation we're in honor of the Canadian filmmaker whose uh, speaker was thrown to the ground in, will be in Ottawa. Okay, excellent. Linda Chavez. First, let me just compliment uh, Ben. I, I'm not much of a Twitter follower, as listeners know, but uh, I have followed Ben on Twitter and seen the wonderful uh, films of all of uh, his direct action uh, against the, the Russian embassy. Uh, I'm going to point uh, to a new newsletter, which has been uh, announced and started this week that listeners can sign up for. It's by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and it's called Politica with a K, uh, and it will have in it all you need to know about what's happening in Russia, in Ukraine, uh, and the various politics of that region, 
It is headed up by Alexander Baunov, I think is the way you pronounce the name, not sure. And uh, I just recommend it because it has the kind of in-depth articles that you won't necessarily find, at least on a daily basis, in uh, your newspapers. So people should go to Carnegie Politica and sign up. Okay. Is it free? It is free, as far as I know. I didn't have to pay for it. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. Damon Linker. My highlight of the week is uh, a pretty lengthy uh, but lively essay in the New York Times by David Leanhart, who is one of their very best uh, writers. It's titled, uh, in quotes, A Crisis Coming, then colon, The Twin Threats to American Democracy. Uh, The two threats are, first of all, the uh, Trumpian uh, refusal to accept the results of democratic elections. We're all very much aware of that one. The other one is the somewhat subtler and more, uh, in some ways, more troubling because it's more difficult to respond to. Uh, The problem of the the way that America's uh, array of either counter-majoritarian institutions or just plain old somewhat quirky institutions uh, are interesting interacting with the shape of the two parties' electoral coalitions. This is the phenomenon where, as recently as uh, 2008 and and 2012, Obama actually had a very efficient electoral coalition uh, for uh, the Senate, for instance, whereas now that is not the case. And of course, in our system, the Electoral College is partly a function of the way uh, the Senate breakdown happens. And so what you have now is that the Electoral College for the presidency is working out that, uh, you know, Trump won uh, the election in 2016 while losing the popular vote by 2.9 million. Four years later in 2020, he lost the electoral uh, the electoral college, but he came within really only about 70,000 votes in four states of winning it, despite coming 7 million votes short in the popular vote nationally. This is a situation uh, that is very troubling because it leads Democrats to kind of consistently across those institutions, which is the Senate and the presidency, plus, uh, you know, great, very strong partisan gerrymandering in the House, so that it is possible, it is sometimes happening and is going to become more uh more likely in the coming years that Democrats are going to win majority votes and yet lose power. And that, of course, uh, is is very destabilizing for any democracy. So this is something that a lot of activists on the left talk about and, and sort of, I think, somewhat recklessly impugn all of our institutions. We need to scrap the Electoral College, scrap the Senate, and we have to do all these other things, some of which I support, other things which are both futile, because the the Senate is written into the Constitution in such a way that it is it is inconceivable to get rid of it unless you had a constitutional convention and started from scratch, which is the last thing we should be trying to do. And so I think Leinhardt's piece is very, very useful because it's sober and smart while recognizing the, the risks of these things. He goes through and walks through with data very carefully explaining 
how, yes, these things are bad, but they are a function of our institutions, plus these more contingent things about the two parties' coalitions. And that's exactly the right way in which it needs to be understood and thought about by citizens as we try to figure out in some way how to get out of the messes we seem to be finding ourselves in these days. Thank you so much. Okay, I would like to praise the new documentary that's on PBS by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein, The United States and the Holocaust. Um, Obviously, uh, the grimmest of grim subjects, but it is a really astounding piece of work uh, by these uh, documentarians. And I'm a big fan of Ken Burns's work, but I have to say this is the greatest thing that he has done since uh, the Civil War. Um, maybe it definitely, you know, on that, on that level and, uh, very, very sobering. Look, there's just no way to watch this documentary without drawing parallels to our current time and to the degree that it causes people to do so. That's, that's all to the good, uh, with obvious distinctions, but a brilliant piece of work and, uh, it's available on PBS. And with that, I would like to thank Benjamin Wittes for joining us and Will Salatin for sitting in for Bill this week. And I want to thank our sound engineer, Jason Brown, and our producer, Katie Cooper. We also, of course, thank our listeners. And if you're so inclined, if you think this is the kind of conversation that the world needs more of, then, you know, we don't ask you to pay. This is available free, but we only ask that you spread the word. And that means by leaving a review or comment and uh, and just get the word out there on iTunes and elsewhere, whatever platform you listen to this on, um, recommend it to other people because uh, same, you know, non-tribal conversation that really grapples with ideas uh, is, uh, is the only answer to the problems that we face. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. And we will return next week as every week.